$175.5 billion, the size of the New York State budget for fiscal year 2020 enacted by the legislature this weekend for a fiscal year start date of April 1st. The budget includes several notable policy changes, including making the local property tax cap permanent, banning plastic bags, several tax policy changes, criminal justice reforms, and both new funding and reforms at the MTA. CBC's state team is here to discuss the key takeaways with us. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Maria Dulles from the CBC. And we are here for our quick reaction state budget edition of the podcast. As Maria said, a deal came together over the weekend. Uh, we in the media got a press release in the wee hours after midnight Saturday night, and then the governor held a press conference Sunday to outline elements of the new state budget ready to go into effect on Monday, as Maria said. And then legislators were discussing and voting on the bills all through the night on Sunday night into Monday morning, as they do. Uh, and there's a lot to unpack, so we're here to discuss it. And we are joined, as Maria said, by CBC's state team of Dave Friedfeld, the Director of State Studies for CBC, and Patrick Orecki, a Senior Research Associate at CBC. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us on. So we're going to jump into all sorts of details here of the state budget deal that has been reached and enacted. But Maria, from CBC's perspective, what are some of the sort of big initial takeaways? So we did do a nice podcast on the executive budget that everyone should check out if they need a little bit of a refresher. But just to give the context for this budget, um, this is a budget that was enacted on the heels of actually this the state realizing a $2.3 billion shortfall on current year revenues, um, an economy that everyone agrees is now slowing and with a recession possibly looming, or at least economists realizing um, or recognizing an increased likelihood of a recession a year or two out. Um and as the governor likes to remind us, a, a budget presented and enacted um, after the enactment of the cap on state and local um, tax deductions, the SALT cap, um, all of which are, are really important, I think, for understanding the context here because the revenues have to equal the expenses and those things are important impacts on revenues, which I think we will um, monitor very closely and unwind, continue to unwind as the fiscal year unfolds. So that that being said, um, the budget plan was really uh, depended heavily on a proposal to extend the temporary millionaire's tax, um, and it included healthy increases in both Medicaid spending and education aid, which were the two big, big slices of, of the budget. Um, overall, the governor proposed a budget that was growing at about 3.4% on state operating spending. This budget that was enacted will probably be around the same, if not a little bit more, um, and proposed very little in savings for a recession or a rainy day. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the level of reserves that the state has. So we see some warning signs um, on the horizon in terms of the economy. There's already been some some worrisome signs with revenue shortfalls in the current year and what the possible impa uh, impacts will be of the salt cap, and yet pressures on spending that continue to remain and drive spending in the budget. There's a lot in this budget, a bunch of policy stuff, a lot of fiscal decisions, obviously, that were made. This budget, as Maria said, is also coming together as there's a lot of uncertainty about the tax receipts that the state is going to to see. And we, of course, are talking and the state fiscal year begins 
before tax day, which has been a subject of a conversation, but we'll probably leave that to another time. Um, but Dave, take us through some other broad strokes on the spending side. The state uh, budget, as Maria said, details about $175.5 billion in spending for the new fiscal year, but not all of that, of course, is state spending. And and it's a mix of funds, of state and federal funds. Um, but give us a couple other of the big takeaways that folks should know um, as we break down this budget. So the state's uh, overall budget, like you said, is $175.5 billion, and that's an all-funds budget. So that includes uh, capital as well as federal funds and kind of normal state funds or state operating funds as kind of the term of art. So the state operating funds budget is about $102 billion. That's what the governor likes to peg his his 2% spending growth uh, number to, is that state operating spending. Um, but once you adjust for some of the things that they've done to, to move things across years or off-budget, that, that's where you get that spending growth of about 3.4% in the executive budget. Um, like Maria said, kind of this budget was built on a, a $2.3 billion revenue shortfall that was experienced in January. Um, and that added to a, a cumulative gap of about $5.8 billion that they were trying to close with, with this year's budget. Um, to do that, there are about $4.4 billion worth of either spending re-estimates or spending changes um, and then about $1.4 billion worth of new revenues. And that, that, that's really how they close the gap. And like Maria mentioned, the, uh, the PIT surcharge, that was, about, that was a little more than half of the, uh, of the new revenues for, for the coming fiscal year. And do we have a lot of detail yet on where they were slicing and dicing some of the expenses, or it's a little too early to, to unpack all that? Um, um, no, we have, we have some good idea. I mean, the... The two biggest pieces of the budget, Medicaid and uh, and uh, education spending, uh, are really kind of outlined ahead of time. Um, this year, they were able to push some additional money kind of into Medicaid, where where, where they have this uh, special cap. Um, they were able to push some additional spending under there um, for some savings. But a lot of that sp- that spending savings actually comes on the uh, the agency agency operations side. Uh, state operations uh, spending has been held basically flat since the governor came into office. Um, some years you actually saw some declines, other years some you know, very small increases. Um, so th- that's where a lot of that, that savings comes from. And in terms of the revenue raisers, now this is a little bit, I think, complicated for folks because there's the, the, the big taxes um, that I think a lot of people are hearing about are actually ones that are dedicated to the MTA now. So there's there's kind of a mix at play here, yeah. Yeah, and and some of the the attention doesn't necessarily always go to where the the largest money is. Um, so the the PIT surcharge that was extended at higher rate of eight point eight two percent versus falling back to six point eight five percent. This is otherwise um, known as the millionaire's tax. Correct, um, and that raises about uh, seven hundred eighty million dollars in this fiscal year. But but that's only going to be because it's only one quarter because it doesn't apply until January 1st, 2020. Um, so, so that's where you get that, that small amount of $780 million. Um, whereas on a full annual basis, it's going to bring in about $5 billion per year. Uh, and that actually has gotten very little attention, particularly in the last few weeks or months, because it was just kind of agreed to ahead of time, I think. Yeah, um, it, it, I mean, it's such a notable increase in taxes, in tax projection revenues. It is fundamentally how the budget becomes balanced in 2020 and, and supports a lot of the spending in the out years. And yet, even though the governor has railed about the salt cap and the income on these high income earners who are very mobile, and yet the state is so reliant on them for basically the base of the, the personal income tax, 
it was a given that the millionaire's tax would be extended and it got virtually no attention in the run up to to the um to enactment mostly because all the parties agreed that that was a go so it was something that they all agreed upon very early and and i think also when something is is just an extension it's not an increase it's not you know there's no big change to it it's probably a little bit easier to say well we've been doing this we're just going to continue to do it but as you say maria you know, this does fly in the face of the red flags that have been raised by the governor and others about what's happening with the highest income earners and our questions about are people changing their primary residences to change where they're paying most of their taxes and things like that. We don't know the answers on all that yet, but certainly extending this uh, millionaire's tax raises some more questions about that. <laughs> but as you say, they might not have really been able to do a reasonable budget without it. I mean, we were talking about huge huge shifts without it, right? Right. And in terms of managing a budget through a recession, it, you know, you do it usually through spending restraint, you make some cuts and you do raise revenue. I mean, these are sort of like the standard things that you expect, but th that's how we got to the millionaire's tax to begin with, right? It was enacted as a temporary measure through a recession to say, we really need the revenue, the the state revenues at the time were almost in free fall. Um, and so now that that has been sort of baseline for the next five years, if a recession occurs in the next five years, where will they go um, to, to increase the revenues? You were going to say, Dave? Yeah, and, and now that now it will be 16 years that this temporary surcharge has been uh, has been in effect, um, and and that's not temporary anymore. I mean, right. there are certain things the state does every couple of years to extend where the expectation is that they'll be extended. They just want to have an opportunity to revisit it, which isn't a bad idea. But but this was supposed to be temporary. This wasn't supposed to be permanent. I want to come back to something on the spending side, but on the revenue raisers, uh, other things you want to mention: the millionaires tax extension, obviously this this very big chunk. What else? Um, so they also did something in, in statute um, related to marketplace um, sellers or online sellers. These are kind of like Amazon, eBay, those types of entities. And many people, when they when they buy something from Amazon, they'll notice if you know if it's Prime eligible, then it'll get sales tax collected. If it's not Prime eligible, if it's a third party seller, um, then they won't get sales tax collected on it. Um, so Amazon and other places don't actually currently collect sales tax if they're selling it on behalf of someone else. Um, Whereas now, now they'll have to, and, and that was done statutorily. Um, and then this, the state is also going to do some administrative things uh, about, and they'll get about 250 million from the marketplace change per year, and then about 70 million per year through some administrative changes that they're going to make to also collect more sales tax from online sales. And now that internet sales tax or closing of that loophole, I guess you might say, that is one of the dedicated new revenue streams for the MTA, correct? Kind of. So, so that's the way it was sold. <laughs> okay. Um, and and I and I don't I don't think anybody I don't think it was particularly it was, it was dishonest or anything. Um, but that's definitely the way it was sold. In reality, what they did was they made these changes, and then they said New York City is going to give a chunk of sales tax money to the MTA, and this state is going to give a chunk of sales tax money to the uh, to the MTA. Um, those figures are about full, on a full annual basis. It'll be about 170 million from the city and 150 million from the state. And those are kind of pegged to a little bit less than I think what what they're expecting those places to get from the uh, collecting taxes here um, from the from the city and, and you know much less than from the state. Um, but they're not actually linked. So if you know it gets held up in court or if nobody you know the internet crashes and nobody buys anything on eBay ever again, the you know that money's still going to go from the city to uh, to the MTA. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Good point there. And um, let's come back to spending. Uh, explain what's going on with the capital side of the budgeting. Um, you're specific to the state or to the MTA? 
Oh, to the state. Sorry. Yeah. And in terms of we, we didn't get a lot of great insight, apparently, into state capital spending. Yeah, um, the, the state capital bill this year was actually was pretty light in comparison to, to prior years. Um, you know, the governor talked about this, you know, increasing his uh, his capital campaign of 100 billion to 150 billion. But but there really isn't too much that, that we're able to find in the capital bill. And there are actually a few things that that had been there in prior years, the uh, state municipal facilities um, funding, which is kind of which is basically pork right. um, that the governor would allocate. Um, and there was no allocation this year, which was uh, which is a which was a good thing to see, but but a little surprising nonetheless. Yeah, very surprising. Where's the pork that the legislature will allocate? Well, they they allocated some of the the uh, state municipal facilities money as well. There were some there were agreements there, um, and there were some other pots that they still have uh, have access to. So let's talk about what these taxes are supporting. Right, the two big slices of the budget are education aid that goes to local school districts. Um, and Medicaid spending. So, let, and, and the, you know, as you mentioned, state agency spending has been held flat for a pretty long time. Not so with these two pieces of the budget. So let's take Medicaid first. Um, that is still projected to grow at 3.6%, but what were the substantive changes in Medicaid, but in the health sphere overall? Yeah, on, on the Medicaid front, the story became, especially after the January revenue shortfall was announced, um, that the governor proposed a few actions that would uh, reduce some of the planned spending increases in the Medicaid program. Um, there were three main items. The first being uh, kind of undoing a planned temporary rate increase for hospitals and nursing homes um, that was going to be financed with some money the state had from the uh, conversion of a, a, a for-profit health insurer um, transaction. The second item being uh, that the state was going to reduce Medicaid rates beyond that uh, across the board. And then the third thing was a kind of reprogramming and reduction of a supplemental payment in the Medicaid program. So the basic point there being that the, the um, budget negotiation process started with a proposed $550 million annual cut to the Medicaid program. Um, so very quickly, the legislature postured itself to say that those cuts weren't acceptable and very quickly in the negotiation process, all of those cuts were restored. Um, so there are still kind of no changes to how the state allocates its supplemental uh, payments, which is an important thing. It's something that we at the CBC have, have written a lot about. Um, it basically kind of maintains the status quo of Medicaid um, spending growth in, in the budget year. There are many supplemental payments in the Medicaid program. Um, the one that this was targeting was a $1.1 billion pot that basically is paid out to just about every hospital in New York State. Um, what the governor proposed to do was to reduce that by nearly $300 million a year um, and more or less prevent the wealthiest hospital systems in the downstate region from receiving any of that funding. Um, even though that was something that more or less targeted wealthier private hospitals, uh, it still was considered by the legislature to be an untenable cut. Um, so basically, the, the status quo continues in those uh, supplemental payment programs. Sounds a bit like the education aid outcome. <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to mention anything else on Medicaid before we switch over to education. No, I, it, I think it does follow the education format of kind of no losers and, and getting back to a pretty standard rate of growth of 3% or more in the program. Mm -hmm. Dave, what's the, what are the couple of the big takeaways on the education funding side? So, so the governor had proposed about a billion dollar increase in education aid overall and had some um, 
really kind of technical uh, programmatic language that would force certain school districts to spend more money in higher need districts. And it was kind of a complicated formula about how they got there. Um, but he was the, sort the of, I mean, he was sort of getting down the road to what CBC has recommended, which we've covered on previous episodes of the podcast and won't go into detail, but targeting aid better. Kind of. Uh, the The big difference, I think, is that, that we've talked a lot about how districts need Districts should have poorer districts should have more aid targeted to them. Um, this was more about within the district. Right. And the truth is, outside of New York City, you do not have a lot of variance within individual school districts. I mean, they they kind of picked on Buffalo and Syracuse and Rochester. Um, but but those areas, you're, it's not like there are neighborhood schools with high wealth and neighborhood schools with low wealth. It's not like the city. It's just those districts are, are pretty homogeneous. Um, so it was really the New York City was really kind of the, the main target, I right, think. Right. Um, but those those changes were rejected. Governor also proposed to consolidate all expense based aids. So these are things that reimburse for transportation and uh, books and building aid and those types of things um, to consolidate, and make some some streamlining there. Those proposals were also rejected. Um, but the legislature did shift more money into foundation aid. Um, and, and, you know, the governor pushed pretty hard about how now 70 percent of the increase is going to go to poor school districts. Um, but that means 30 percent of the increase is going to go to wealthy school districts. Um, so kind of half glass, half full. Um, we had done some analysis showing that you could fund a sound basic education statewide by adding one hundred and sixty four million dollars. They added a billion. Advocates were pushing for two billion. So um, you know, clearly they added more than they needed to. Um but uh, but not as much as some advocates were pushing on. Yeah, I mean, that seems like an issue where Cuomo basically got what he wanted. And, and certainly that was some of where the fiscal reality seemed to really set in for what advocates were pushing for and even some legislators. Yeah, though, here I am. And I, I'm wondering how we could be comfortable adding a billion to the, the budget and still not getting to sound basic education in some districts. I mean, how is this an acceptable outcome? And, and that's not even to say that once you meet a sound basic education requirement, you're done. Right. You, there's probably more that you want to do. And that should be targeted also. But now education aid at the state level is meant to supplement lo local resources. Right. And for the most part, it is progressively tar targeted. So we'll be clear about that. And it's probably much improved than before the foundation aid formula came into effect. Nevertheless, there's still about, you know, Dave's last estimate, I think, um, at the time of exec was a billion dollars out of the budget. It's just going to the wealthiest districts to to supplement spending. That's already really high, just based on very minimal local tax effort because they're very affluent regions. I find this so troublesome. Mm. I, I, and, I, and the governor was pretty frank about all this when he discussed it on different radio programs and at press conferences and such. I mean, yeah. he he acknowledged uh, some of the reality that that we're getting at here that um you know, that some of these increases are not not really necessary, but that legislators from these areas always want to bring back more, 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 more yeah. money. And it's an unsustainable trajectory for the state budget, quite frankly. And speaking of, uh, this ties in with the property tax cap. It does. So the uh, the governor had been pushing for a permanent property tax cap for a while. Um, the we Senate, should say this applies everywhere outside of New York City. Just remind folks, right? Yes, sorry, it applies sorry, to school ahead. districts as well as municipal governments, counties. Um in special districts and, and everything. Um, so the government pushing for a permanent property tax cap, and it, it is a hard 2% or the rate of inflation, whichever is lower. I think that whichever is lower has uh, has 
angered many uh, many government officials, um, local government officials, because you know in years recent years it's been quite low. You know it's been below one percent. There have been a few times, um, but it, the uh, cap was made permanent. People have been pushing for um, a lot of changes to the cap. None of them were in the adopted budget. It is just a straight. It went from the way it was um, expiring to now it's you know it's a permanent cap. And this is a little bit of as you just indicated there something that really didn't necessarily be need uh, need to be dealt with this year as speaker hasty said but something the governor said he wanted to give people some more assurances you know he was playing i think a little bit of a political game there trying to push through some of the other things he pushed through that were not necessarily as popular in some of the suburban areas like criminal justice reform we think um and you know we're we're mostly focused on the fiscal aspects of the budget here but there certainly were some policy elements like bail reform, speedy trial reform, discovery reform that are very significant, but don't necessarily come into sort of the, you know, the study of the fiscal impact um, that we're mostly getting at here in this conversation. Um, but but he did really make a focus on this property tax cap permanence um, and, and they passed it. Yeah. And I think it's pretty popular among some Semenduka Democrats, particularly those in suburban districts where that are fairly moderate sure. um, and have previously elected Republicans. Um so, you know, in the last few minutes, we have to, of course, talk about the MTA, which drove a lot of the attention and coverage of the budget, at least downstate. Um, let's recap what's in there in terms of new funding for the MTA, what that's supposed to leverage for the capital plan, and then what reforms were included, if you will, or if we can call them that, um, on the governance side. Sure. On the, so on the revenue side, um, there are three main pieces. There is the transfer tax. Um, so on properties worth more than... Uh, two million dollars, um, or th- actually, yeah, more than two million dollars. There's kind of a progressive sliding scale uh, of a transfer tax, and it's levied only in New York City, but it's going to benefit, you know, the whole uh, MTA. Um, and that kind of top increase um, could be as much as 3.15 percent. And that's on properties um, valued at more than 25 million dollars. Um, so there's obviously, you know, very, uh, very, um, very wealthy people purchasing these properties, but it's also a significant uh, tax increase. Um, and one of the kind of concerns there is is that the property, any type of property transfer tax um, revenues are going to be very volatile. So not only does the uh, the overall market go up and down, where we have more transactions or less, but, but particularly high value properties will go up and down in value considerably from from year to year as the market goes up and down. So it's definitely something to to keep an eye on. And the MTA is expecting about three hundred sixty five million dollars per year from that tax. Uh, there's also that sales tax dedication we touched on before, mm-hmm. uh, probably about $320 million uh, between state and city, $170 million city, $150 million state full annual. Um, that'll that'll go to the MTA. And then there's, you know, the kind of the biggest piece is congestion pricing. And I'm going to turn that over to Patrick to discuss. Yeah, so so-called congestion pricing, or as it's formally called within the bill, um, the, the title congestion pricing was stricken. The Central Business District Tolling Program um, was something that was talked about a lot during the during the budget buildup. Um, and the the bill that was released Sunday afternoon laid out uh, some details of what that program will look like, um, but some other things are are left to be determined um, administratively in the future. But what we do know is that the congestion pricing or congestion tolling program um, will affect 60th Street and South uh, in Manhattan. So all vehicles entering that area will will be told. Um, Although they are exempting the east and west side highways. Yes, correct. Um, that's among uh, among the exemptions that we know that are laid out uh, in the uh, uh, 
legislation. Um, some other things that we know is that there is a you know specific requirement that has to, there has to be clean signage um, that lets people know when they're entering that district and when they're going to be told. Um, but a lot of the details are not yet formally known yet. So we don't know the what the tolls are going to be. It's the biggest one, right? <laughs> yes. Yep. So the legislation sets up basically a, uh, a so-called traffic mobility review board within the uh, um, Triborough, Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, which is an affiliate of the MTA. Um, and that traffic mobility review board is going to have the jurisdiction to decide basically what the rates will be. Um, they'll be in charge of setting up any other discounts or exemptions. There are a lot of things that were talked about um, as, you know, users of, of bridges and tunnels around the area. Will there be some kind of discount when they enter uh, the central business district, motorcycles, um, all kinds of things that will be left up to, to that board to determine exactly how the program is going to roll out. Um, and most of those details, the, the board is required to release uh, basically at the end of calendar year 2019. So the other thing to note here is that while it was very good that they all came together and agreed on new funding sources for the MTA capital plan, we know what the needs of the system are. We've talked about that repeatedly. There's no MTA capital plan. It's unclear what the number is they're trying to meet. Um, so there's no capital plan. And the, the part of the process that should have already happened is that there should have been the release of this capital needs assessment, which also has not been made public if it if it exists. So, you know, they, they, they came together on this. Now the question is, what will the calculus be when the plan is, how the plan is constructed, devised, what it will include? And then there's some requirements in statute now about how the monies will be used. Right, Patrick? Yeah, so we know that the board has to construct those rates to be sufficient to support $15 billion in additional capital spending at the MTA. So whatever calculus they have to do has to meet that benchmark. So the congestion pricing revenue, along with the two other revenue sources that, that Dave mentioned, will go into a so-called lockbox that'll support those additional kind of um, state of good repair pursuit capital projects at the MTA. Um, we also know that of that lockbox revenue, 80% has to go to uh, subways and buses, 10% uh, to the LIRR, and 10% to Metro North Railroad. So those revenues are, are divvied up between the, the main assets or the main railroads of, of the MTA. And as Marie indicated, the next MTA capital plan is going to be a subject of a lot of discussion and scrutiny coming up very soon. We'll have a separate episode on that at some point in the not-too-distant future. But this is where they are gaming out revenue from these three new streams, basically trying to get as close as they can to what people are estimating will be a 30 to 50, let's say, billion dollar five-year MTA capital plan. Um, so there's a lot still to be determined, but they tried to set up in this budget at least a path to getting most of the way there so that the state and the city are not, um, you know, overly stressing future budgets and they're not having to come up with additional uh, new revenue streams. And there will be, you know, there will be, um, you know, discussions at the MTA about how to how to meet those needs and what the needs actually are. Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't think the funding question is so fully solved yet. And one reason is that the the revenue source, the real property transfer tax and the mansion tax that they've spoke about as the new taxes backing the MTA 
you know, I know from my work in the city, that source of revenue is really volatile, which makes it a really poor choice to bond out over time because in order to get a good rate, you need to have sufficient bond coverage and have that revenue stream be fairly consistent. So I, I think there may still be some questions here about this, but, um, you know, again, overall good that they came together to pass congestion pricing and agree on some additional revenue sources for a capital plan that will be pretty large. Um, still unanswered questions about what that plan will look like, what share for the um, subways versus the railroads, and how much will be on the core state of good repair work the system needs versus additional expansion. Right, and there's that Andy Byford fast-forward plan that's still sort of just like hanging out there waiting <laughs> right. to be finalized and funded, and that's going to be a big part of the conversation. All right, yep. we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that another time. Um, you mentioned, you know, that, that it from CBC's perspective, and I think a lot of other folks out there, you know, the the fact that they finally got to this congestion pricing deal um, with a lot of details still to be worked out was seen as a, a positive development. Um, other things that sort of fit into that bucket are the property tax cap we mentioned, also a deal to ban, mostly ban. I, I, I've I'm having a hard time using the word ban because there are a lot of exceptions, but the the near ban on plastic, you know, single use bags and the potential opt in to a paper bag fee in localities. Um, let's just sort of leave that leave that to be discussed another time as well. But that got through. Um, there were some other things that I'll mention around voting reform and. They agreed to come to a new public campaign financing system, but that's also kicked to a commission. They included some money in the budget for previously passed voting reforms like early voting. That was a big, even though it's not that much money, it was a source of consternation among some localities. Okay, we want to do early voting. How are we going to pay for it? There's some money in the budget to send around for that. E-poll books, which were seen as necessary to institute things like early voting, were passed and some funding allocated. So last couple of things we want to get to here, though, um, Dave, take a minute on economic development spending. Um, you know, this is continues to be a, a source of controversy. What's the state spending on economic development? How is it spending it, et cetera? What are a couple of the takeaways folks should know from this budget? Um, so when the governor released his budget, um, there was uh, $500,000 to build a database of deals. Um which is kind of is, is you know, what we've called it and what other groups have called it. Um, I think they just called it a database for economic development spending. Um, and it was just kind of a blank uh, 500,000. And, and we really pushed to have them um, statutorily define what's going to be in there so that the public will see exactly what's being spent, exactly how many jobs are being created, how many were promised, and really kind of get an idea on, on a return on investment. Um, the, both houses of the legislature had some language in their one-house budgets that would have um, put in some specificity there, um, but the final budget just has that $500,000, um, you know, much to our disappointment. Um, there was also an agreement announced by the governor and the comptroller that they were going to um, restore some oversight for the comptroller, but they didn't do that statutorily. That was done basically by a handshake, so at any time, if either one of the party decides things aren't working out, they could uh, they could cancel that, and that's that was one of the issues that we believe may have allowed the Buffalo Billion scandals to happen in that the state comptroller didn't have pre-audit review of those contracts or those RFPs, so they couldn't flag issues that later on turned into uh, to criminal proceedings. Um, the other thing that got added in um, at the last second was another $840 million for the film tax credit. Outrageous. Uh, it, Outrageous. It, it, it is. And, and you know, they, they kind of couch it as extending the, the tax credit, but because of the way the credit functions, 
it's really just piling on an extra 840 million. And as soon as they eat through uh, whatever money was allocated, you know, before the budget was passed, then they just, you know, keep plowing through the next 840 million um, to subsidize an industry that's well established and, you know, is not uh, not exactly wanting for uh, for funds. And on on that front, is there any any change on the regional economic development councils or any? It doesn't seem like there's any big changes on the economic development front. Is that a good way to put it? Or um, yeah, basically there there was one change, and it's it's probably more political than uh, than budgetary. But the uh, the governor inserted it, and it's actually the very last piece of like the very last bill. It was a change to the way the public authorities control board functions, um, and that was the board that was tied up with uh, you know the approval of Amazon. And uh, they changed it so that now a member, um, there are three members, one appointed by the governor, one from the Senate, one from the Assembly, um, that the members are, are not allowed to vote no against a proposal unless it is because the, um, the proposal isn't, isn't financed properly. Um, and presumably DOB sets the, the agenda, the Division of Budget sets the agenda for these meetings, so they're not going to put anything up there that doesn't have the money behind it. Um, so, so now the person can get kicked off the board if they decide that they don't think it's a good use of state money or there's some other uh, consideration why they're going to vote no. All right. Final takeaways here. Patrick, I assume uh, next steps, things you're watching include what happens with this, um, you know, the, the outline of the congestion pricing scheme. You're sort of looking at leadership changes and things at the, at the MTA and then the creation of this new panel that's going to help set those markers yeah absolutely there were a lot of a lot of mta reforms that were put in place kind of in conjunction with authorizing congestion pricing um, a lot of new reporting requirements performance metric reporting a 20-year needs assessment um, all these things that are now going to be uh, to, to change governance to an extent at the mta potentially um, will be something that we'll watch going forward and we briefly touched on this. I think Maria mentioned it early, but you know, Dave, it's it's certainly worth watching, right? That the state has fairly limited money in reserves, and we need to see what the tax uh, receipts are going to be coming up. And and you know, we this could be you know we could be revisiting this budget deal potentially. Well, we could. Um, and one of the things that that got um, left in the budget or put into the budget um, that the governor had proposed in a slightly different form is that if if the budget is imbalanced, um, according to the way DOB looks at things by uh, by five hundred million dollars or more, then DOB gets to propose a plan and the legislature has 30 days to respond. And if they don't, then DOB can cut local aid, and that would include school aid um, amongst the amongst other forms of aid. And that's kind of a, a sign that they think there is trouble on, on the horizon, um, and they didn't want to deal with it right now. They decided to kind of kick the can down the road. Um, and like Maria mentioned, you know, the, the state's reserves are, are really limited. They only have, uh, if they make all the deposits they're promising, they'll, they'll deposit two and a half, they'll have two and a half billion dollars on reserve. Um, and a recession could, you know, wipe out thirty-four billion, thirty-four billion dollars worth of revenue over three years. Um, so, so less than ten percent. And I'll just say a few things, you know, worth watching. The governor, um, apparently, part of the budget deal, which I don't know if it's in language anywhere exactly, but you know that that the state is going to finally release uh, several hundred million dollars that were previously earmarked for NYCHA. Now that there's a monitor in place, we'll be having to watch how that plays out. There's always city state. And NYCHA squabbling over over the state releasing money that's promised. Um, you know, the mayor's office 
estimated that there's about $185 million in cuts or cost shifts from this state budget to the city. We'll have to take a closer look at that and see exactly what that looks like. Um, and, and then the city budget obviously process now unfolds with the state budget in place. The city can now react more as it heads towards its fiscal year that begins July 1st. Um, and then there's the post-budget session, which you know, some of the things that are going to be discussed here will have different fiscal impacts in some ways, like the governor's top agenda items is continuing to look at marijuana legalization. Um, rent regulations are going to be a huge battle and discussion. Um, and then and then a variety of other things from more healthcare reform to environmental issues and beyond. So a lot still to look for. Um, but thank you, uh, both Dave and Patrick, for helping us break down some of this. And we will be coming up with more episodes of What's the Data Point. We've been on a, a string of episodes in a short amount of time, um, but some really great conversations with Nicole Gelinas, Polly Trottenberg, Alicia Glenn, uh, our CBC state budget experts. And then coming up, we're going to have Dr. Mitchell Katz of Health and Hospitals and some other great stuff coming along. Guys, thanks for joining us. Everybody else, stay Thank tuned. You. Good to talk with you. Bye.